And I realized that there was no external way that I could be permanently happy or even um, frequently happy. The only way to, to find that release, that relief, would be to go within myself. Don't ask me why I figured that one out, but and I guess it was obvious because outside was not going to work. It had just been shown to me that it didn't. And so I was willing. That's why I remember exactly the date that I started sitting Zazen because it was the night before that that I read that book. And I realized that to do Zazen was the only way out. The only way out is the way in, or the only way in is the way out. The only way out of suffering is to go within and free yourself from the tentacles of your attachments. Mitra Bishop Roshi began practicing Zen in 1974 while living in Turkey and soon began training at the Rochester Zen Center with Roshi Philip Kaplow. In 1986, Mitra Roshi was ordained by Roshi Kaplow and after completing her formal training in 1992, she moved to Sogenji, a Rinzai temple in Okayama, Japan, to train under the guidance of the venerable Harada Shoto Roshi. Mitra Roshi returned to the United States in 1996 and was formally sanctioned to teach by Roshi Kaplow as one of his Dharma heirs. In that same year, she was asked to guide the Hidden Valley Zen Center in San Marcos, California, as well as establish Mountain Gate Sanmunji, a monastic practice center in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Mitra Roshi is an accomplished calligrapher, and her writings have appeared in the books Mu, Zen Teaching, Zen Practice, Blossoms of the Dharma, and in The Record of the Hidden Lamp, as well as numerous websites and magazines. You can find a number of her videos, or Tesho Zen Talks, available on YouTube. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Mitra Roshi, I was really struck when I was listening to some of your videos, of which there are really quite a lot. But what I was so struck by was how quickly and how firmly you talk about the liberation, that there is something worth opening up to. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about that liberation, that what it is that we are engaging in with this practice. Human beings are conditioned human beings from the moment we're born we um, we're intelligent beings, and so we draw conclusions about how we're being treated, how to behave, and so on and so forth. We're taught 
to behave in certain ways. And often we have a self-reflection on this. And it's often it's not that positive either. Um, we can develop a negative self-image. We develop a number of habit patterns of uh, denying ourselves the reality as it is. In other words, somebody, somebody gets rough with us, uh, complains a lot about us, is negative about us, telling us we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that, and even maybe disparages us in other ways. We take that in, and it doesn't feel good, and so we don't want to feel it, and so we shut it down. And unfortunately, the reactivity that that can engender uh, comes out in our daily life. We find ourselves uh, assuming that people who aren't doing that to us are doing it to us, and so we react as if they were. And our behavior can be um, challenging, and we're not even aware of it. We're a prison prisoner to our our conditioning. That is not to say that. All conditioning is, is bad. In fact, it keeps us from running out in front of the truck, hopefully, that's speeding down the highway. It keeps us from putting our hand in the fire the second time. It gives us a better chance of staying alive. But um, we, we tend to live out of a self-image that's been developed through that conditioning. We're a prisoner to it, and we don't even realize it. We wonder why people are reacting to us in certain ways. We wonder why our life is going in certain directions. And, and yet underneath it all is this incredible freedom that we have if we can disengage from the self-image we have developed as a result of all this. Let me give you an example. Hmm. There was a, a Zen master uh, many centuries ago in the 1600s in Japan. His name was Shido Munan, which actually means the great way is not difficult. And he was in his 40s, I think it was at the time, in a tiny little village in Japan. And it's very difficult to really get the enormity of what happened to him because the Japanese culture is so different from ours. In the Japanese culture, the community is most important. The individual is far less important than the whole community. And for one person to disturb the community is anathema. It's just not acceptable. There's a saying in English, and I don't know if it's, it, it refers to Japan, but I don't know if it's Japanese in origin, uh, that the nail that sticks up gets pounded down. Hmm. And, and the harmony of the group is most important. As well, in that era, Zen monks, Zen priests were celibate. One day, in the village, a young girl got pregnant, and she was not married, and uh, her parents tried to get her to tell the, the name of the father, and she refused for a long time, and finally she said, it's that monk, Shirobunan which was horrifying. And so when the baby was born, the grandparents marched it over to the temple and said, here, you did this. It's your responsibility. You take this child, it's yours, you raise it. 
and she looked none. Seeing the situation very, very clearly, recognizing that if the mother said he was the father, how could he argue with that? He wasn't. But what his response was, was difficult to translate into English. In Japanese, it's soka, which is a very humble way of saying something that we might extrapolate to, oh, it does look like this, I see. And that was it. He received the child, raised her for a year, and then the mother confessed who the father really was. So now the grandparents, who are doubly embarrassed, mortified really, uh, went back, heads hanging low, and, and uh, begged the baby back. And again, he didn't have to say anything. He didn't feel like, and this is the important part, he didn't feel like saying, well, you should have known. I wouldn't have done something like that. <laughs> he had no need to do it. He was free. And free in a way that is very difficult to comprehend for most people. But this freedom is available to us through our practice. It's hard one, I have to say that much, because in order to reach it, we have to see where we're caught. And that brings up something that inspired me for a long time in my own practice, which was quite challenging. This, this practice is truly bodhisattvic. First, it shows us where we're caught, and then it sets us free. And that's Zen practice in a nutshell. It shows us where we're caught if we're serious about practice. And then there is our opportunity, the need to integrate our realization into our daily life. So it's very difficult for people to climb into that, but it's real. And the freedom that he felt is real. He wasn't putting on. He really didn't need to react. And it wasn't because he was stoic. It was because he was free. And that level of freedom is available to anyone who is serious about their meditation practice and is willing to work with an experienced teacher and stick it out and keep going. It is possible. And I love that story. It also kind of strikes me as like indicative of what is possible. But mm -hmm. I think so many of us are just like, I need to be set free of what other people think of me, even just as we're driving down the road. And that feels yeah. so hard to let go of, uh, let alone, you know, my whole reputation is uh, wrapped up in you know, doing something improper. How do you guide your students through the the experience, you know, before they have a Kensho experience of just seeing the, you know, the emptiness of that, of that attachment or? Yeah, it, it you know, each person is an individual and they're, they're proceeding in different ways and different paces. And it's about meeting the person where they're at and encouraging them at that point to continue on. There's no one size fits all in Zen. Each person is a wonderful individual, 
with their own history and their own conditioning and their own level of commitment to practice as well. And uh, I encourage people to come to Sashin if they're ready to, to come to Sashin. Sashin um, are these extended meditation retreats. Seven days is what we offer at Mountain Gate. Uh, we have weekend ones in Hidden Valley Zen Center uh, because that's more in the city area and people people will take off a week once or twice a year to come to a seven-day sashin, but most people don't have that time more than once or twice a year. And so to be able to do a sashin, a little short sashin over a weekend also gives you a shot in the arm and practice a deeper level of practice. And it's usually at sashin where, where people are... Um, making the most progress because simply they're sitting for a long time, uh, many hours every day for an extended several days. And things can come up then. And, and I just work with people with what's coming up for them, always encouraging them because I know how difficult it was in my own life. In fact, uh, I've said that I moved to the Rochester Zen Center because I knew I didn't have the self-discipline to sit on my own to the degree I needed to sit. And I had to go somewhere where either I couldn't be there if I didn't sit or I would have to sit. And so that's why I went to the Rochester Zen Center. I had an experience where I, I actually plunged into Shido Bonan's mind state spontaneously after reading that story. And, and so I know personally the level of freedom that that can provide. I also know the long, hard work it takes to manifest that more and more in your daily life. You were living in Turkey, is my understanding, and practicing on your own. Yes. When I went to live in Turkey, I was married to a diplomat. That's how I ended up in Turkey. And um, when we, soon after we arrived, we were invited along with all the other Americans who had arrived that particular period of time to the ambassador's house for a kind of a get together, an introduction. Uh, and there I met uh, an American and he happened to mention that he did meditation. I wasn't that interested. <laughs> well, three months later, my life crashed. Uh, every aspect of my life that I valued was at shards at my feet. It was a desolate, desperate, terrible, terrible nightmare of a time. And that same person happened to have a copy of Roshi Kaplow's second book, which was called The Wheel of Death. Hmm. And I felt like I wanted to commit suicide, actually. And so I was then further depressed because I realized I did not have the courage to do that. And then I thought, well, I'd, if I can't do it, I can at least read about it. So it was a very thin little book, four chapters, Death, Dying, Karma, and Rebirth. And I I was, I devoured it. I read it in one sitting. And I was fascinated by the tales of Socrates and the Zen masters 
all of whom could die without blinking an eyelash, without any problem, no, no fear, no anxiety. Uh, in a certain way, some of them, at least uh, Socrates said that, you know, who could know? Maybe it was one of the most amazing trips one could take. I thought, all right, then I have to do Zazen. And I realized that there was no external way that I could be permanently happy or even um, frequently happy. The only way to, to find that release, that relief, would be to go within myself. Don't ask me why I figured that one out, but and I guess it was obvious because outside was not going to work. It had just been shown to me that it didn't. And so I was willing. That's why I remember exactly the date that I started sitting Zazen because it was the night before that that I read that book. And I realized that to do Zazen was the only way out. The only way out is the way in, or mm. the only way in is the way out. Mm. I guess both of them work. The, the only way out of right. suffering is to go within and free yourself from the tentacles of your attachments. So what was what was Roshi Kaplow like? I you know, he he exists, I think, as you know, one of these early teachers, but I'm not sure I really know much about him and Yeah, he was a, he was a good example actually. Um when I first went to Rochester I was terrified of him, but that happened to be mm. because of my own conditioning. Mm. It felt like he could see right through me. And I'm sure he could, <laughs> but he did, he was able to do that with empathy and without um, condemnation, without, without criticism. It was pretty interesting. I mean, he, he had his um, foibles. He had his own attachments. What impressed me deeply in the many years that I was with him and uh, towards the end of my training, I was his secretary, and then I was in Mexico twice for extended periods of time as he was writing this, the, uh, a couple of books. And um, then when he moved to Santa Fe and Bowdoin Roshi took over the Rochester Zen Center, I was his, uh, one of his two attendants. And so I, I could, I knew a lot about the man. And one thing that impressed me so much is that, sure, he had his attachments, but every time he saw one, that was the end of it. The, over the years, his transformation was beautiful to see. Really, really beautiful to see. He was flexible. He died into his 90s, and he never stopped practicing all the way through to the end of his life. That's admirable. So many people get to a certain age, uh, and they just stop. Any, any personal development? But he didn't. He just kept going. And he was strict. He didn't, he didn't pass... He didn't pass me, at least, uh, easily. Uh, and I didn't see that with, with his other students as well. 
he was a, very serious about his his teaching and his responsibility to bring people to the deepest level, or I should say, help them reach the deepest level, inspire them to reach the deepest level. Now, you you did go to Japan uh, to study did. Mm-hmm. with uh, Harada Shoto Roshi. Mm-hmm. And can you say a little bit about that experience? Also, how this becomes part of how you now guide people and, and sort of pass down a, you know, a lineage that's, that's really coming from one person to the next, right? As you're learning from someone who's experienced some level of awaken, you know, awakening. Uh, now I have no doubt that Kaplaroshi had had awakening. He would not have been able to teach as well as he did or behave in the way he did had he not had it. Uh, I, when I finished my formal training in Rochester, I would have been welcome to continue on staying at the Rochester Zen Center and serving mm. there. But I felt that I still needed to deepen my practice in, in, in a significant way. And I had, at the time, actually serendipitously met Hadaroshi, who actually came to Rochester mm. uh, to visit um, the backstory on that is that it's traditional in the Keplo lineage that if you're in the teacher track and you finish your formal training, you go on a pilgrimage. You go around to various different centers uh, outside the United States, generally speaking, not necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, to test your, your development and to also learn uh, from other people about teaching. And so Bowden had taken a year off uh, at that point in his time, and he spent some of that time at Sogenji himself. Uh, and so Haruderoshi got to know him. And at, soon after that, the uh, one of Haruderoshi's students moved to Seattle. And uh, she went to nursing school, and then she also set up a, a sort of a, an affiliate group, a meditation group. And in order to be uh, official, that group had to have a sponsor. And so Haridoshi asked Bowden if he would sponsor the group. And of course, he said yes. And so then a year later, Haridoshi came to Rochester to personally thank Odin for doing that. This is a traditional Japanese uh, thing to do. It's called uh, Aisatsu. And and I happened to be there at the time, and that's when I met Haridoshi, and I, I felt an instant connection. And it was the next step forward. Someone gave me the gift of a sashin with him in the United States, and I went to there. And uh, then the next year, um, went to Sogenji, went to Japan for three months, Two months of which I spent at Sogenji. I also sat in Kyoto with Morinaga Sokoroshi. And then I did the Rohatsu Sashin at Bukokuji, which is in the same lineage as Kaploroshi. And then I came back. And But my first moment I, I stepped over the front gate at Sogenji, I knew I had to come back. And so within less less than a year, just a few months later, I went back to live there. Because, well, the affinity was there. I felt a strong need to continue to deepen. I had had this taste 
of what that freedom could be like. And I knew I wanted to, to open more and more and more completely to it. And there was the avenue. And the, the training at, at Soganji is phenomenal. And uh, I value it deeply. I felt like uh, all my training has been excellent. One of the, the things you talk about in your talks and your Tesho and, and elsewhere is this manifesting of, you know, the awakening that happens in your daily life. And you now are also involved in this uh, Regaining Balance program. And before we end the show, I really would love for you to say a little bit about Regaining Balance, but also how that appears, you know, we talk about these cons and, and you know, I think for a lot of people, they're like, well, what's this really about? But ultimately, for me anyway, it's, it's really about showing you how to live, live in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's a thread that goes between those and regaining balance. And if you could tell people a little bit about regaining balance. Zen and I think, um, you know, the quantum school as well, I believe, are, are um, within the, what's known as the Mahayana. Mm-hmm. Uh, School, it's not school, it's a uh, tradition, anyway. The Mahayana yeah. tradition, yeah. Uh, and the Mahayana is, is labeled as coming to awakening not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings. Mm -hmm. That's something called the Bodhisattva vow to come to awakening for the benefit of all beings. And, and at a certain point, you, you begin working in that direction to relieve suffering for all of life. And I have a history of, of connection with military and the war. My father was in the Second World War. He was gone for a year and a half when I was a tiny kid, as I was born just months before the war started. And... Um, I remember as a toddler walking down the stairs in my grandparents' house where my mother and I were staying while he was gone. I guess the other women in the house didn't get up that early, but my grandfather was up early and I would peer through the banisters at him uh, with his ear cocked to the radio and a cigarette in his hand and a coffee cup beside him, listening to the reports of the troop movements because my father was overseas in the war. My uncle was overseas in the war. My uncle had lied about his age. He was 17 years old, still in high school and, and uh, enlisted in the Navy. And so the, the, there was a palpable sense of concern in the family. And it kind of went on from there. Uh, my father did come back. And then there were the life photo essay books of photographs, large format photographs of the, the um, Asian theater, the Pacific theater where he was. Uh, he went in uh, to the Philippines when they were returned. He was in New Guinea for a while. And there were photographs that I can still see in my, my mind's eye of American airmen hanging from the trees where their parachutes had gotten caught. And uh, they're all dead because 
they couldn't get down and their blood was cut off. So anyway, uh, it's a long story, but uh, various different images in that book. And then later on, when I was in towards the end of grade school, uh, similar books came out on the the uh, Hungarian Revolution and the Romanian Revolution, also violent, violent photographs. And then we lived in Sault Ste. Marie when I was in grade school, and the Korean War was happening. And uh, I don't know if you know much about Sault Ste. Marie, but it's situated at locks between that allow ships to go between Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes. So the iron ore is mined off of Lake Superior and shipped down to Chicago through those locks. And the word was that if the Chinese wanted to end the steel production in the United States, all they had to do was bomb us right there at the locks. So there was this threat of fear uh, of war and so on that invaded my life. In New Mexico, a lot, there's not a lot of opportunities for young people. And many of them go into the military as a career. And the women who go into the military are often, and thanks, thankfully this is being revealed now, often end up being raped by their fellow soldiers. And uh, any attempt to uh, report it or get any any uh, legal steps taken is quashed. I've heard horrible, horrible stories from these women. And I thought, okay, they're the bottom of the barrel. And uh, there are a lot of problems with, with uh, supporting veterans. It's as if we send these young kids overseas and, and they risk their lives and limbs and minds. And they come back, not all in one piece, and we just sort of drop them off the end of the cliff. Okay, bye. Thanks, bye. It's been the devil to get services, even medical, basic medical services. That's been in the news. And I thought, if there's one thing I, I can do to uh, attempt to help relieve some level of suffering is to develop a program for women veterans with PTSD. Now, there is a fundamental Zen practice in the Rinzai sect, which is uh, called Susokkan. It's extending the out-breath and being totally present in your body as you're doing that. You extend it beyond where you would ordinarily breathe back in. It activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and, and relax, as opposed to fight and flight. And so it's... I thought that's the basis. We'll teach these women to do a mindfulness meditation using that method. And then because of what I had found mm -hmm. successful in freeing myself as well from some negative history in my own life, uh, we teach them also what is called, or what we're calling journaling the felt sense. We give them a book called Focusing, which is uh, an incredible book on staying present actually. And I encourage my Zen students to read that as well. And we teach them a couple of other things and we also take them for walks. We have a boundary here at Mountain Gate with the National Forest. And it's known that being out in nature can be healing. And, and basically it's just a quick little experience 
and learning some tools to help um, de-stress. And it seems to be pretty successful. The, the women, we've had a number of women come back again and again to these retreats. And we just recently got asked to do an advanced retreat where we would take women who'd been to at least one of our previous retreats, regular retreats, and um, take them into uh, uh, a situation where they might get triggered. In this case, we're going to take them up to Taos where there are a number of fairs and things going on usually. And so they'll be in a crowd. Uh, they'll be exposed to situations. Being in crowds is very traumatizing, uh, or at least very anxiety-producing for uh, veterans because uh, they don't know where an attack is going to come forth from. And we would be there, the staff, our volunteer staff, would be there to help them um, engage their, their own learned methods for regrounding themselves. So it's called the Regaining Balance program. It's under regainingbalance.org if you want to look it up on the website. And that's, it just seems like an appropriate outreach for uh, any of us here in Zen to do because Zen practice is about living what you realize, opening, living, sharing, and helping to relieve suffering in that way. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Mitra Bishop Roshi encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website Mountain Gate Sanmonji at sanmonjizen.org, and I'll put the link in the show notes. She also works with the Regaining Balance program, which offers retreats for women veterans with PTSD, and you can find out more at regainingbalance.org. And she is connected to Hidden Valley Zen Center, which is at hvzc.org. All of those links will be in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.